Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Yeah, so if I could be honest, you know, I didn't, don't want to be up here this morning. You know, just everything that has taken place in our country over the last few weeks, whether it's Buffalo, Uvalde, Texas, you know, I came to Faith of Young Life, and my first church that ordained me was Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist just came out with a horrible report about sexual abuse in their own institution, their own presidents, pastors. And it's just heartbreaking. You know, the church's witness in the world, we... There's a lot of brokenness in the church, a lot of brokenness in the world, but I look at the church and sometimes I go, okay, God, there's, it's a mess. Where there should be light, there's darkness. And where there should be light and there should be a revelation of light, there's people in positions of power protecting their own institutions instead of lifting up those who are abused and broken. It's just, it's hard. I don't know if you guys feel that. I feel, I feel it's, it's heavy. And just this week, you know, I've been reading articles from different people, certain people I kind of go to to kind of get some guidance on this and, and just in response. And, you know, one thing that this week teaches me is that sin is real. I mean, sin, we live in a broken world. And I often hear politicians even say, you know, when they describe these shooters that there's, this is just evil in the heart. And, and it's true, it's evil. But I think sometimes when we say it's just evil in the heart, it allows us to escape the consequences of their behavior as if we don't have some role in it. Does that make sense? That that's just evil, that's just an evil individual. No, that individual lived in a community, lived in a country, lived in a culture, and all of us are part of that, and all of us are responsible. You know, in Scripture, God holds people accountable sometimes for the actions of the few. You see, God judged nations for the actions of the few, and so certainly that is evil in a young man's heart, but that's also something we have to own. And as the people of God, Jesus entered into the brokenness of the world. That's what justice does. Justice doesn't stand back and condemn. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. You guys are good Bible people. He came into the world to save the world. He got in the midst of the darkness and he pulled out of the darkness. He brought light and he brought up the brokenness and he, he addressed the sin. And so how do we respond in the midst of this one? We, we recognize that sin is real and we shouldn't be surprised that we are. I'm surprised when I see injustice in places where there should be righteousness. But the one thing that we're not good at, and certainly in the evangelical church, is lament, grieving. My heart doesn't immediately go to, to grief, but Scripture does. I mean, throughout the Bible, it, when you see sin and brokenness in the world, it's, it's lamentation, it's grief. Jesus, when he approaches Jerusalem, you know, God sent prophet after prophet, I mean, generosity after generosity, goodness after goodness, and what did they do? They killed him. God sent his son, what did they do? They killed him. And when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he doesn't condemn the wickedness of Jerusalem, but you know what he does? He weeps. His heart is broken for the sin and the brokenness and the in the communities and in the city and in the streets and in the schools and in our institutions, his heart weeps. He was a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. Jesus was a man of grief and sorrow. And I find I'm just a man of anger. You know what I mean? 
I turn on Tucker Carlson, I turn on CNN, I turn on, well, you know what I get? I get more anger. I get more fear. And I don't know if that's your first reaction, but what it needs to be is to listen to the Spirit, to be brought to a place of brokenness and lamentation. And like we prayed, you know, last week I taught you guys a prayer. You remember it? You remember that prayer? It's pretty simple. Lord, have mercy. That when you see brokenness, when you see wickedness, when you see sin, just to say, you know what, God, this is too big for me. Lord, have mercy. I don't know what this person deserves. I don't know what this situation, I don't know how to fix it. Lord, have mercy. And so what do these events teach us? One, sin is real, but two, we need to be brought to a place of brokenness and, and then begin to see that sin that's out there, it's in me. I mean, evil goes, it's a dividing line in every human heart. And the changes that we need to make, I know we have these political changes and some of those are good and some of those just take us in different directions where we kind of tribalize together, but we can make changes in our own community simply by paying attention to the people around us. You know, Scripture says that we're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. When you see someone mourning, we're supposed to enter into that space, to grieve with those who grieve. You know, one of the things that was so heartbreaking this week, I was reading and the diaries of the Buffalo shooter. Have you read those diaries that came out? I don't know if they were posted online, if they were private diaries. Because when you think of somebody that goes out and targets African-American citizens, goes out and kills 10 of them in a shopping center, or someone that kills 19, 19, 19. I mean, one is enough. Third and fourth graders, you just think, that's just pure evil. There's no, no humanity left. And yet you read the diary of this this young man, this 18-year-old man whose heart was just filled with, with anger and yet there was this, this humanity to him. And in this diary, I want to put this up on the screen. I read this this week and, and what it causes me to think is all the kids in our community who are in this same place. Now, they may not take that next step, right? They may not, hopefully, God forbid. But there are kids in the same situation, loneliness, Set aside, isolated, and here's what he wrote. My parents know little. My parents know little about me. Is that the voice of evil? They don't know about the hundreds of silver ounces I've had or the hundreds of dollars I've spent on ammo. They don't even know I have a shotgun and an AR-15 or illegal magazines. Why would you write that? Because you want somebody to know. And then he wrote these words. Promise me, if you have a child, you will be there. You will be close. You will be a friend to your child and make sure they know that you will always help them. Talk about their problems and ways to solve it and never make them feel bad about coming to you. Now, I'm not trying to make you sympathetic to this young man. What I want you to see is the humanity that is still there. And that humanity and that loneliness is in our culture. You know, it's in kids that come to our church. You're on the outside, we look good. You guys look good. And yet our kids are struggling with addictions. They're struggling with loneliness. They're struggling with rejection. They're struggling with body image. Do we care? Do we care about the kids that bag our grocery at the store? Do we care at the kids that are at our high school, or our junior high, or elementary school, or we just see them as a nuisance because they cause problems in our neighborhood and break our stuff and 
ride their bikes across our grass? Do we see them as people we are called to care for? You know, one of the visions that God gave me early on is never to be a pastor of a church. Always to be a pastor of a community. That that elementary school is my elementary school, whether my kids go there or not. That middle school is my middle school. That high school is my high school. That fire department is my fire department. That police officer is my police officer. That community worker, they belong to us. We are part of this community. And God has given us a vision to work for the benefit of the city in which we live. And so church, what are we going to do differently? Not how are we just going to vote and what are we going to yell at and what are we going to get angry about and how are we going to react to this, but what are we going to do differently together that actually makes an impact in the lives of the people that are around us. One thing we can do is simply, on the one hand, to mourn and then to be aware of the needs of the people around us. We can do that. And you may think that's small, it's not. Because I can guarantee you if someone invested into these kids, if someone loved them enough, invested enough, something could have been different. Something could have been different. My heart's heavy. We're going to jump into Revelation chapter 2. I've got to tell you, this is a tough passage too. I don't think you're going to like it. <laughs> I didn't like it. I was like, i got to say what? Oh, the book of Revelation. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. We're halfway there though, guys. Four more weeks. That's all. We're in this letter to the church in Pergamon. Actually, I was going to, I want to read this prayer. This a prayer I came across this week, it brought me comfort. It was from a guy named Clement, the Bishop of Rome, and I want to just open up with this. He writes, and I, in this prayer, he says, open the eyes, you guys got that, open the eyes of our hearts to know you, who are the highest of highs, the holiest of holy. You bring down the haughtiness of the proud and thwart the schemes of the dishonest. You raise up the lowly and cast down the lofty. Riches and poverty, death and life are in your hand. You alone can discern every spirit. Looking into the depths of every soul. You protect those in danger. Give hope to those in despair. Guide every creature on earth. By your power, the nations of the earth can flourish and increase. And so grant us, Lord. We beseech you, your grace. Pity the poor. Encourage those who are sad. Enlighten those whose spirits are in darkness. Father, heal the sick. Would you guide the confused? Would you feed the hungry? Would you release those who are unjustly imprisoned? Would you support the weak, comfort the faint-hearted? And let all the nations of the world know that you are God and that Jesus Christ is your child and that we are your people. Amen. So how can we stay true to Christ in a culture with competing values? That's what this passage is about. We're going to pick it up, Revelation chapter 2 and verse, and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast to my name. You do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there in your midst who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. He says something quite shocking in verse 13. He says, I know where you live. And again, the book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's a, in, a, in a way, glimpsing behind the scenes of what's really happening. We just see the surface. We see the materialism. Jesus is looking behind the scene. He says, you live in a city in which Satan dwells where his throne is present. That's bad. Now, what does that mean? Now, Pergamum, Pergamum is a city that was built high. It's about 1,000 feet above sea levels, built high. We have a picture of this on a hill. There's Pergamum. There it is. Atop of that hill was a temple to the god Zeus. Zeus was the true, not the true, the, the original in some ways, king of kings and lord of lords, that's where that term comes from. He was the god of gods. And next to the temple to Zeus was the temple to Trajan, the Roman emperor. And you come to that, tra- that temple and you would declare, Jesus is Lord. That's with a phrase, I mean Jesus is Lord. You didn't say that there. It'd be nice if you did. You'd say Caesar <laughs> is Lord. And that's why the statement Jesus, here we go, Jesus is Lord, is such a political statement. Because see, in that culture, your highest allegiance, your public allegiance was to the emperor. Now at home, you can worship whatever you want. I don't care. You can worship Jesus. The Romans didn't care if you worship Jesus. But see, if you only worship Jesus, they thought you were an atheist. Why don't you worship the emperor? Because see, in that culture, the emperor was first and primary. You had to worship, you had to worship the nation the state first. Now, Zeus was next to him, so there's other gods. And then when you started to move around that hill, there were gods to various powers. There was Athena. Some call her the goddess of war. She's really the goddess of wisdom. Wisdom in the midst of battle. Wisdom in the midst of life. There was Demeter, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the harvest. There's Plutus. If you wanted wealth, you'd go to the temple of Plutus. And you would offer sacrifice and you would get wealth. There was every desire you could possibly have was met in some way in one of these temples around the top of this city. Every human desire could be met. And then you came down the hill and you came to the temple of the, the, the god Escopolis. And this was the god of healing. And see, Escopolis was this, this god that healed you in a pretty strange way. He healed you with snakes. And actually, this, this temple was not just a temple. It was actually a, the first early hospital. And the image of a, a scopolis was a picture of a serpent. You've actually seen this. Have you ever seen that? It started in Pergamum. A picture of a snake wrapped around a rod, symbolizing the medical professional, which is all about science, right? We're all about science. That's why we're using an image of a Greek god. And you go to this Escapalon, 
And what you do is they put you under drugs and then they would try to induce you into this trance where you'd have a dream and in this dream you'd discover what's wrong with you and then they would release these snakes and the snakes would touch you and they would heal you. And if you were healed, you would walk out and you would write kind of what your condition was and what happened and they would actually put your name on a white stone outside of the Escapolon and they would kind of honor the gods for what they've done. See, in this community was, was everything. We actually have this symbol. If you look at this next picture, it's right in our own community. Evergreen Fire and Rescue. I think some of us know that. It's the God of healing. And in this culture, there were all these gods for all these desires and all these needs. And he uses that image and he says, you know, this is a place where Satan has, has his throne. Where every desire could be met. Now, why is he saying Satan has his throne? See, on the outside, it just looks like a, a temple to healing. A temple to fertility. A temple to money and wealth. And he's saying, no, there's something deeper. There's something darker. There's something spiritual behind it. It's just money, it's just food, it's just sex, right? No big deal. The body is for the body, sex is for sex, life is for life, none of it has a spiritual meaning. I can do these things, they really don't impact me. And he's saying, now I'm pulling back the curtain and I want you to know there's demonic powers behind the things you pursue. You know, First John, John talks about this. He says, test the spirits. And it's not spirit capital, it's spirit diminished spirits to see whether they are from God. For many spirits have gone out into the world. Many false prophets have gone out into the world that behind every philosophy, behind every pursuit, behind every idol, behind everything that we worship, there is a demonic power. This is the place where Satan has his throne. Now, we don't see the world that way, certainly not in our material. I told you you wouldn't like this. You'd be like, wait a minute, are we going to talk about this? Do you actually believe in a satanic, a demonic power? I do. And I'll tell you simply why, because I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and that's about all I need. And if I can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then I can believe in what Jesus taught. Now, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I need to get rid of it and all the commands with it. But if he did rise, that's what Paul says. He says, then we're going to hold on to what Jesus taught. And so we're holding on to what Jesus taught. And he's saying, behind all that you see in the world are these spirits. But it's also the throne of Satan. It's a throne of authority. And again, in this, this city, you had to honor Caesar as, as Lord. If not, there would be persecution. That's what happened last week. We looked in the, the church in Smyrna. Smyrna overcame great persecution because they would not bow the knee to the emperor Domitian. And Jesus mentions this in verse 13. He talks about my faithful witness, Antipas who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He says, listen, guys, when persecution was great, you stood. When the attack was direct and you could see it, you stood strong. And in the days of Antipas, where there was great persecution, you were faithful. Good job. And he says, you are a faithful witness. And the word witness is martyrion, from which we get the English word martyr. A martyr is simply a witness, and wherever you are a witness for Christ, you're going to rub up against the culture of the world, and there will be persecution. There will be values in the world that we either have to choose to reject or to accept. But see, something happens between verses 13 and 14. So he says, you hold fast to my name, verse 13. You didn't deny my faith even when things got tough. So when the attack was direct and you could see it, you held fast. But see, what's going to happen in verse 14, we're going to try a different tactic. We're going to use some old school 
approaches. So verse 13, he says, but I have a few things against you. He says, you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And he goes on, you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So in this culture, there were these teachings. Now, we don't really know who the Nicolaitans are. They're mentioned twice in the book of Revelation, but they have something to do with a story in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24 of Balak and Balaam. Now, Balak was a Moabite king, and he hated Israel because Israel was about to take the promised land, and it was a good piece of real estate, right? Didn't want them to enter into the promised land, so he goes and gets this corrupt prophet named Balaam. Balaam, listen, I'm going to pay you. I want you to just go curse the Israelites. That's all, all you got to do. Bring down cursing upon them. Balaam's like, okay, sure, I can do that. Corrupt prophet. And he goes up on this high place and he looks down and he tries to curse Israel. But every time he did, some of you may know the story, he blessed them. He was a true prophet in that sense. He was corrupt, but deep down inside, the spirit of God was still in him. So he'd go back to Balak and say, listen, it's not working. Go try it again. Go back up on the high place, tries to curse Israel, blessing would come out. Like, it's not working, Block. Okay. Hey, let's try something else. If we can't curse them, let's get them to reject their God. Let's get them to start worshiping the gods of the nations, the desires of the nations. So what they did is they sent a bunch of beautiful women, Moabite women, to the, to the Israelites. And see, these Moabite women, they practiced an idolatry that involved food sacrifice to idols, great feasts. It's probably good food, pork, you know, Barbecue, shrimp. But see, after, the, after you ate, you satisfied your body, you satisfied your sexual appetites. And what happened is they used seduction. Seduction's slow, right? Starts with a thought. It's no big deal. Food is just food. The body's just the body. Sex is just sex, right? Isn't it? My truth is my truth. Expressive individualism. Don't let anyone tell you what to believe. To find yourself, you're just, you've got to discover who you really are. And what happened is they started leading the nation of Israel. See, they didn't directly curse God, did they? No, what happened is they just slowly started to be pulled away. And that's what was happening in Pergamum. That's what these Nicolaitans were doing. Nicolaitans in some way were saying, listen, the body's just the body. It doesn't affect the soul Pornography is just pornography, guys. Come on, it's no big deal. 60% of our church-attending culture is addicted in some way to pornography. It's not a big deal. It's not denigrating women. It's just a, it's a physical release. That's all we're looking for. It doesn't impact the soul. Money is just money. Work is just work. I can give 80 hours to it. It's not going to harm me. It's not going to create a spiritual... See, this is where Jesus is saying there are powers behind the things that you pursue that are demonic. Behind nationalism, there is a demonic power. Behind food, behind sex. Even our culture gets it. Come on. Do you know how many articles I've read over this last year from secular authors who say the consent culture is killing young men and women? Have you heard that? New York Times, The Atlantic. Secular writers who are saying consent is not enough for our men and women. You know why? Because they're watching illicit sex. 
on the internet. And then they consent to something. It's just fun. It's just, it's just the body and what happens? It destroys their life. And these secular authors are saying, they're starting to get to it, right? Sex has a purpose. It's like, what? You can't say that. Not in this, they're realizing wisdom, listen, wisdom comes back around. Cultures eventually start coming back to wisdom. And when you see the secular culture start saying that, get behind them, start, start applauding. You're right, I think there is a purpose. There is a purpose. And it's destroying people. And that's what's happening in this, this church in Pergamum. They're being drawn away. They're being drawn astray. It just looks like pleasure. It just looks like leisure activities. It just looks like money. It just looks like wealth. But Jesus is saying, hey, if I could pull back the screen for a minute, that stuff's going to take you down a path you never intended to go. That's the definition of being lost, right? Who starts out wanting to be lost? Financially, relationally, sexually, morally? No, it just starts taking you down a direction. You say, hey, you know, it's no big deal. And listen, if I can even get real personal, youth sports, is there a spirit behind youth, youth sports today? I can't say that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with youth sports. But eventually we start making sacrifices, and I think you understand what I mean, and over time, these small little sacrifices that we make, we say, you know, we can put Christ aside. My kids are more important. Their experiences are more important than getting them in a community where Christ is exalted, where God's glory is proclaimed, where we understand what it means to follow him, to be a disciple of Jesus. Behind the things we pursue are spiritual powers, but we live in such a materialistic world that that's not gonna land on you. And that's what he's saying to this church. Listen, guys, you're being led astray. Daryl Johnson helped me to capture this. I wanna pull up this quote and he said it this way. Yes, the, the idol is nothing. But behind the idol, associated with the idol, lurks the presence and authority of unseen spiritual forces. Paul calls them demons in 1 Corinthians 10.20. These are not neutral acts. On the surface, it appears to be so. But reality is never exhausted by surface appearances. Idol worship opens the worshiper up to unseen realms idols of course are not only made of wood and stone they are made of cultural values political agendas lifestyles corporate ethos even religious movements there's something deeper there's something deeper there's something deeper what is taking allegiance over your heart and listen it's a good thing sex is a good thing money's a good thing these are things god created but when we elevate them in our lives, they begin to take over. And Jesus' words are simple, repent. Those are words of grace. It means you can change. Change is possible. If you're first willing to admit my life is heading down the wrong way, it's heading towards food, it's heading towards sex, heading towards pleasure, it's heading towards my own pursuits, what I think is best, my own political agendas, my own ideologies, whatever I said, Repentance is to submit myself to who? Remember how Jesus was revealed? The one with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the one who is truth. And see, truth can be destructive when we ignore it. And see, what is truth? Truth's reality. If I'm standing on a thousand-foot cliff, God doesn't have to punish me for having bad balance. 
I'm going to punish myself by falling off the cliff. Because see, truth corresponds to reality. And if, if I'm foolish enough about reality, then punishment, judgment comes on myself. The wrath of God, you know what it is? It's God handing us over to our desires. Hey, you want what you want. Food's just food. Sex's just sex. Pleasure's just pleasure. I'll just give you over to it. And he removes his presence and his grace. And we see there is one who kills and steals and destroys. And thankfully, by God's grace, he doesn't remove his presence from us. But that's what the wrath of God is. It's, it's handing someone over to what they think they want and they think they deserve. And then we start to see the real destruction, the real brokenness. And he says, repent. Or I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. How are we doing with this? How are you doing? The desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes, the lust of life. What's captivating your heart? What's flooding your mind, flooding your soul? And even our culture gets that sex is not just sex and, and drink is not just drink and food's not just food. Even our popular culture, they start to understand it. There was a song, I, I don't know this, I'm not gonna sound cool up here because I don't know this songwriter or singer. Her, her name's Sia, you guys probably know Sia. Australian, okay. I don't. I'm just a pastor up here. She wrote this song called Chandelier, and I found the words to this song haunting and captivating. The words of this song, she's describing this experience that she's having. She wants to party. She wants to live it up. She wants to get drunk. She wants to have sex. She wants to swing from a chandelier. Now, why? And you read the words of this song, and you find out that tomorrow's coming. Tomorrow's coming, something she wants to avoid. There's heartache, there's pain. And so she gives herself over to things that are just food, just drink, just the body. And then what ends up happening is this tremendous shame comes over. And so she writes this, you'll see it up on the, the wall. The sun is up, the party's over. I'm a mess. Gotta get out now. Gotta run from this. And then notice, here comes the shame. Here comes the shame. Who told her to be ashamed? Food's just food. The body's just body. Sex is just sex. And what happens when we feel ashamed? We run from it. We should be running to God. But what do we do? One, two, three. One, two, three. Sex. One, two, three. One, two, three. Recreation. One, two, three. One, two, three. Work. One, two, three, one, two, three, politics. What can fill the emptiness inside of me? One, two, three, one, two, three, drink. And notice, throw them back till I can't feel anything. I lose count. That's life, isn't it? As a secular writer describing what the Bible expresses, there's, there's guilt and shame. You're created for something more. And so in replacement of that pursuit of compromise, Jesus offers something better. Jesus offers a fulfillment of intimacy and a new identity. That when we submit to his truth, because Jesus is the one with the two double-edged sword, what does that mean? Surrender to my truth. Surrender my truth. You're, you can do it now in repentance. You can have life that is abundant and free. You can do it now. You're gonna do it eventually. It's better to do it today. And if you do, he says, I'll give you two things. If you repent, if you just admit, it's just 
Lord, I want more of you in my life. I don't want to just react to the world. I want to say, Lord, have mercy. When I see brokenness and I see sin, I don't want to react to the news. That's what the news does. The news is using you. You know that. Just selling ads for Coke. That's all they're trying to do. They want your reaction. When they went to the temples, realize when they went to temples in Pergamum, these gods didn't love them. They just served them. Athena, she's not going to love you. You go to Athena to make Athena great. You go to Fox News to make Fox, Fox News great. You go to CNN to make CNN great. They are not there to love you. Jesus will. Money will not love you. Work will not love you. Unless you put the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings at his center place. And that's what he's saying. And so what will Jesus give us? Notice he describes it this way. He who has an ear to hear. If you're willing to listen, hear what the Spirit says. And understand the Spirit is still speaking. What, when you see those tragedies on, the te- on television, you need to say, Spirit, what are you saying to me? Lord, what are you speaking to me right now? My flesh is speaking, I hear it all the time. My desires are speaking, I hear it all the time. My mind is working, and my culture is constantly throwing more things at me. Say, go get it, go get it, go get it. Spirit of God, what are you saying to me? And he's saying, I got something better. To the one who conquers, which means to the one who listens, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone. Now we gotta go back to that temple worship, that white stone where your name was written on it when you were healed. I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. No one knows except for the one who receives it. What's he talking about? First of all, hidden manna. What's manna? See, manna is what God fed his people when they had been rescued from Egypt, but they weren't quite home. You know that they're headed to the promised land, right? So God rescued them. They couldn't rescue themselves. That's the picture of sin. We cannot rescue ourselves from sin. We need a rescuer, a redeemer, the Lamb of God, whose blood goes not over the doorpost, goes over our hearts. And he rescues us out of Egypt. Now, we still want to go back, right? Food, sex, drugs, all that kind of stuff. We want to go back, money. But what does he do? How does he sustain them? He says, listen, guys, I want you to trust me. I'm going to give you just enough for today. Give us this day our daily bread. It kind of connects. And I want to give you enough. If you rely on me, I will give you enough life for today. And that's what God did was in the wilderness, he fed them as they were exiles traveling to the promised land. You know, you are still in exile. Now, we're celebrating Memorial Day. I love my country. I prefer my country. And that's a good thing. I don't worship my country. Because my country, in terms of the New Testament, and I know people don't like this, is called Babylon. Now, I think America's a lot better than Babylon, but it's still Babylon. What's Babylon? Babylon does not represent the king. It cannot represent the king, and it cannot bring about the kingdom. That's all it is. And we live as exiles. We're, in, we're citizens of heaven living in this community. We're a city on a hill, right? So we are in the city, but we're a city on a hill. We are a called out people devoted to our king. And what does God want to give us? He wants to give us manna. What's manna? John chapter 6, Jesus comes and he says this. Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And they said, verse 34, hey, sir, we love that. We want some. Give us some bread. And he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Have you tried him? I don't think we believe it. 
I don't think so. I know this heart has a hard time believing that he can satisfy my deepest longings. Do you know why he can't? Because he created them. He created them. The longings you have, they have a good fulfillment in Christ. But we gotta be desperate enough. You know what lamentation does? It takes you to the end of yourself. That's why we lament. When we see sin, it brings us to the end of our anger, just allows us to be isolated. Lament, it takes us to the end of our sense. God, I need you, I need you, I need you. Jesus is the bread of life. And then finally, he's going to give us a white stone with a new name written on. They said in Pergamum that you would get a white stone when you were invited to a party. And it would have your name on it and you'd be invited to one of these temple one of these parties one of, where there's food sacrifice to idols, there's sexual immorality. Now the Christians were invited. The Christians weren't invited. They suffered. Because if you didn't worship Dionysus, if you didn't worship Athena, if you didn't worship Zeus, there was no promotion. You ain't getting the promotion. You ain't marrying her. She's devoted to Dionysus. She wants somebody that's like Athena. She wants Zeus. You're not going to advance in this culture unless you say Caesar is Lord. You got to make a choice. Either he is Lord or you are Lord. Either his desires are first or your desires are first. And what Jesus says is, listen, I know the culture's rejected you. I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand. They rejected me. But see, I am giving you a stone with a new name. Abram is Abraham. Jacob, Israel. Saul, Paul. Cephas, Peter. Saul persecuted the church. He's forgiven, redeemed, renewed. Now he's building the church. Peter, Cephas, denied Christ three times. You can't overcome that, right? 14-year-old girl, aren't you one of them? Heck no. What happened? Forgiveness, redemption, restoration, renewal. Peter, feed my sheep. There is nothing that God can't redeem me from. Now, we may not be running to temples and idols, but what are you running to? Can we be honest? What are you running to? What is your heart longing for? You know, as we celebrate communion this morning, it's an opportunity for us just to acknowledge and repent. That's all. That's how growth happens. It's repentance and faith, repentance and faith. That as you began in Christ as your Savior, you continue to grow in Christ as your Savior, that instead of when challenges come into my life and my marriage with my kids, instead of looking to the things of the world, I gotta look to Christ. He's saving my marriage. He's saving my finances. He's saving my life. He's rescuing me, and repentance is about saying, Lord, I wanna turn my desires from the things of this world that are, they, they may not be bad at this point, but they could lead me astray in directions I don't wanna go. And so if you haven't grabbed the communion elements, I wanna ask you to do that. Those elements are available in the back. You can also come up front and we wanna celebrate. We do this every single Sunday to celebrate communion together, to recognize that our forgiveness, our redemption, it's not something we earn for ourselves. It's something that has been bought through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate that, we're experiencing renewal. Because by faith, we're trusting in grace right now to say, Father, I am broken and I am sinful. Holy Spirit, would you come in and redeem and heal and restore and renew. And Father, I want to trust you this week as the one that holds the truth. And when I bump into the truth of the world, I just want to surrender that back to you and say, Father, what spirit, what are you teaching me right now? What are you teaching me right now? And so if we could just spend a few moments in prayer, I don't know what the Lord has stirred up in this moment. Maybe you need confession. 
You know, after we celebrate communion, Stephen will stay up here and lead, and I'm going to ask those prayer leaders, you know who you are, I'm asking you to be up here. And if you need prayer, they want to pray over you. If you need restoration, you need deliverance from sin, and you may just need to get honest. Look, 60% of Christians struggle with pornography. It's, so I think it's here. It's here. Maybe today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of, you could just be going through depression, hardship, saying, Lord, I don't know if I can still trust you when 19 children are slaughtered in Uvalde. How can God be good? Maybe you just need someone to lay hands on you and just say, Father, we, we weep. We are broken. I want to encourage you after we celebrate communion, take that opportunity and lay your burdens before him. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer.